You're listening to a UCD Humanities Institute podcast. This podcast series features recordings of lectures, seminars and events hosted by or associated with the University College Dublin Humanities Institute. Podcasting is by Real Smart Media. For more information, go to ucd.ie forward slash humanities. This podcast features a lecture by Professor Jan Asman, Honorary Professor of Cultural Studies at the University of Constance. The lecture, Truth and Time, was given in the Humanities Institute on the 27th of May 2019 as part of Truth to be Told, Understanding Truth in the Age of Post-Truth Politics. Truth to be Told is a UCD Humanities Institute public lecture series in response to the emergence of what is called a post-factual world. For more information on Truth to be Told, check out the series page on the UCD Humanities Institute's website. Jan Asman was introduced by Professor Rana Fox, Director of the UCD Humanities Institute. I'd like to welcome you all to uh, the final lecture in our Truth to be Told, Understanding Truth in the Age of Post-Truth Politics series, which, as some of you may remember, began about a year and a half ago with um, a lecture by Supreme Court Justice Peter Charlton, who talked about law and truth, which was then followed by... um, Uh, Marina Warner's talk about truth in stories. Then we had Elida Asman, who of course talked about truth and memory. And then Professor Philip Kitcher, who uh, talked about truth and science. And the historian Peter Fritchie, who addressed the topic of truth and history. And I'm truly delighted that uh, Professor Jan Asman has agreed to, to finish the series with his talk which is announced under the title of Truth and Religion, but there has been a slight shift of focus, I believe, and it's now going to be about truth and time, possibly with some references to religion, because Professor Asman is, of course, internationally renowned for his work on uh, monotheism, Egyptian religion, literature and history, cultural theory, and his ground breaking work on cultural memory in collaboration with his wife, Alida Asman, and of course, the history of religion. Uh, Professor Asman was professor of Egyptology for a very long time at Heidelberg University from 1973 to 2003. And since then, he's been an honorary professor of cultural and religious theory at my alma mater, the University of Constance. He has received many honorary degrees from Yale, for example, Jerusalem, the Hebrew University, and of course he's a member of uh, various German uh, and foreign academies. And uh, I will not spend the evening reading out all his awards and prizes, but let me just mention a few significant ones. So, for example, in 2017, together with Alida Asman, he won the Balzan Prize. In, in 2017, the same year, the Karl Jaspers uh, uh, Medal. And in 2018, perhaps the pinnacle of all these achievements was the very famous and highly regarded Peace Prize of the German book trade. It sounds like a, it's a strange, strange title, but it is really a very significant uh, uh, award. Uh, uh, in Germany. 
Uh, his uh, books in English include The Invention of Religion, Covenant and Faith in the Book of Exodus, which was published uh, by Princeton UP in 2018, From Akhenaten to Moses in 2014, The Price of Monotheism, came out with Stanford UP in 2009, Of God and Gods with Wisconsin UP in 2008, the Mind of Egypt, History and Meaning in the Time of the Pharaohs that came out with Harvard UP in 2003. And then, of course, not to forget his uh, very impressive, impressive Moses the Egyptian, The Memory of Egypt in Western Monotheism, also Harvard UP in 1997. Would you please welcome Jan Asman. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Dear Anna, thank you very much for your kind words, very kind words, and the invitation. Um, for me, it's a great pleasure and a great honor to be the last in this series, and I apologize for having changed the topic that was assigned to me, uh, truth and tradition. Of course, this is a very big topic, perhaps a little too big or a simple Egyptologist, and uh, a topic also on which I wrote so much, especially in my last book on the invention of religion. So um, I um, somehow um, didn't feel like uh, coming back to this big topic again, and I changed the topic, as you may see, to truth and time. Truth to be told. The ancient Egyptians would have added, and truth to be done. They view truth not as something that is out there in the world of facts and data and just to be referred to in an adequate manner. According to Thomas Aquinas' definition, veritas est adequatio rei et intellectus. So the adequation or conversions of fact and mind thus a relation, rather, they view truth as something to be performed, to be made real by means of speech and action. Our Western concept of truth is based on the idea of a perfect adequation of reality, things as they objectively are, on the one hand, and our perception and representation of it on the other. The Greek term for truth, aletheia, meaning something like unconcealedness, seems to refer to this adequation of reality and perception. And this relation of things as they are, and things how we know and perceive them, may be obscured by willful misrepresentation, silencing, calumny, but one day the obscure truth will come to light. And this is the meaning of the adage veritas filia temporis. Truth is the daughter of time. That points to the intimate relation between truth and time. Typical applications of this adage are cases of slander and false accusation. For instance, a wife that has been loyal to her husband all the time but has been slandered and in the secret divorced and accused by her husband, or the loyal officer that fell victim to an intrigue. 
And this is a truth to be told in order that justice may be restored. The truth cannot be permanently obscured by falsehood on the long run. Time on the long run, time will bring it to light. The typical symbol of this automatism of time that brings to light what has been concealed is the sun. In ancient Mesopotamia and ancient Egypt, the sun gods Shamash or Ra are gods of justice, responsible both for time and truth. And even in Germany, there's the saying, die Sonne bringt es an den Tags. The sun will bring it to light. The ancient Egyptians, <clears throat> I don't know, I'm, I'm properly an Egyptologist, uh, not a historian of religion, so, so you will hear <laughs> many details about ancient Egypt, and I hope you will not mind. So the, the ancient Egyptians would not have believed in an automatism in the assertion of truth, but stressed the necessity of human activity in the realization, production, or performance of truth. The idea of truth as something to be done, to be performed, reminds one, in spite of the huge differences in time and political circumstances, of Gandhi's concept of satyagraha, the grasping of truth, from Sanskrit satya, truth, and agraha, to grasp. Gandhi conceived of truth as something categorically hidden, but at the same time aimed at, aspired to, by all humans. In ancient Egypt, Ma'at, truth, justice, order, was not categorically hidden, but also not spelled out in form of a revealed code as the Torah or the Sharia. As I'm going to show the pharaoh, that is the state, was held to be responsible for securing the frame conditions that humans may be able to perform truth in speech, action, and even thought. However, the ancient Egyptians would have subscribed to the idea that lying, covering up, distorting the truth, <clears throat> have short half-life periods and cannot last for long. For them, truth was the principle of lasting, endurance and sustainability, of order, harmony and stability. They represented truth as a goddess with wings and wearing an ostrich feather as an emblem in order to indicate her aerial character. Doing Ma'at, we read in the text, is air for the nose. Ma'at is comparable to air and that it or she is a life element, invisible but indispensable for life. However, they view truth not as some, something existing that has to be discovered and recognized, but as something non-existent that has to be given existence and reality by speech, action and thought. The speaking mouth, the acting hand and the scheming heart these are the three organs to produce the truth, or untruth, as the case may be. The production or creation of truth, however, was thought to be dependent on the state. The office of the king was to establish the conditions on earth that would enable the people to produce the truth in speech and action. An important text of canonical status 
defines the role of the king, that is the state, in the following phrases. Ra, the sun god, has placed the king on the earth of the living forever and ever, satisfying the gods, judging mankind, creating Maat, annihilating Isfet. The king gives divine offerings to the gods and funerary offerings to the blessed dead. The task of the king consists in creating Maat, meaning justice, truth, order, social harmony, and dispelling its contrary, isfet, thus injustice, lawlessness, lie, disorder, and disharmony. He achieves this in both directions, upwards, towards the gods, and, and the dead, by means of the sacrificial cult, and downwards, towards mankind, by administering justice. This is explained in other texts, or administering justice, as rescuing the weak and poor from the strong and the rich. Its main goal is not to punish the criminal, but to re-establish social harmony. The main task of the Egyptian state was to establish harmony. On earth, by enforcing justice, which means to rescue the suppressed, and in the cosmos by integrating society into nature. That is, into the cosmic processes of the solar circuit, the inundation, and the agricultural cycle. According to Egyptian understanding, truth is the foundation of social life, of trust and cooperation, and must be constantly realized by speaking in a way to enhance social coherence and harmony, by acting in a way to minimize conflict and to satisfy all parties, and even by banning all unjust desires from the thinking heart. Communication, interaction, and deliberation are the three spheres in which truth is to be realized. And these spheres are symbolized by three hierarchies the speaking mouth, the hitting arm, and the desiring heart. The same triad underlies also the second tablet of the Decalogue that contains the social obligations of man not to murder, not to rob, not to commit adultery, meaning action, not to lie, not to bear false witness, speech, and not to desire, wife, house, and possessions of another, relating to the heart. In our languages, we distinguish between the truth to be told, let's call it verity, for better clarity, and the truth to be done, which we call justice. The Egyptians used the same word, ma'ad, for both aspects of truth. Verity, the truth to be told, and justice, the truth to be done. Speak the truth, do the truth. This command has been believed by the Egyptians to have been issued by the Son and Creator God himself. In a text <clears throat> dating from about 1850 BCE and known as the tale of the eloquent peasant, there's mention of that beautiful, quote, that beautiful speech that comes forth from the mouth of Re himself. Speak truth and do truth, or speak justice and do justice. For it is mighty, it is great, it is enduring. One will find its trustworthiness. 
it will lead to the status of blessed tomb ownership. This was for the Egyptians the epitome, the apex of life achievement. <clears throat> One could call this commandment the Egyptian categorical imperative. We shall come back to this utterance because it also exemplifies the typically Egyptian relation between truth and time, that is, duration, endurance, sustainability. At first, however, I would like to concentrate on the indistinction between truth and justice, truth to be told and truth to be done. I do not think that this indistinction is just a matter of the archaic incapability to make proper distinctions of what had been called the indifferentiated thinking of the ancient Egyptians or the compactness of early concepts. The Egyptian concept of Ma'at is certainly compact, but this compactness, I should think, is not the outcome of failing differentiation, but of willful identification. If we understand by truth something like trust and social harmony, then verity and justice converge in aiming at, at establishing this goal. The German philosopher Karl Jaspers, in his book on the origin and goal of history, stated, true is, the, true is that which unites us. This book appeared in 1949 and was written under the impression of the Second World War, the NS terror and Holocaust in Germany. Jaspers himself was married to a Jewish wife, whom he refused to divorce, in consequence of which he lost his chair and the permit to publish, and, and was about to be deported with his wife when Heidelberg was occupied by the US Army. In Jaspers' eyes, and right he was, the Third Reich was the rule of lie, disrupting and destroying all human bonds of truth and trust, and plunging the world in chaos and destruction. Under the impression of the catastrophe, he arrived at a concept of truth that closely corresponded to the Egyptian idea of Ma'at. True is that which unites us. A more apposite definition of Ma'at is hardly imaginable. In his acceptance speech of the Peace Prize of the German book trade, which has already been mentioned, he came back to this definition and shed light on the opposite side. I quote, For this reason, untruth is the proper evil that destroys every peace. Untruth, from camouflage to blind laxness, from lie to inner dishonesty, from thoughtlessness to doctrinaire fanaticism, from individual untruthfulness to the untruthfulness of the public situation. After having, after having spent 12 years under the tyranny of lie, Jaspers was yearning for truth. Jaspers was interested in the sociality of truth, and the anti-sociality of lie. The English word truth underlines the sociality of truth because of its relationship with truthfulness or loyalty. True means true both in the sense of verity and of truthfulness. To remain true 
to something or somebody means not to betray or abandon something or somebody. Treu bleiben in German and resti fidel in French. True in the sense of treu or loyal refers to a social relation and to the sociality of truth. That is to the truth that unites us. The same is true, by the way, of the Hebrew word for truth, emet, <clears throat> which is related to emunah, truthfulness. Treue in Germany, in German. True in the sense of wahr, on the other hand, refers to verity, the convergence of facts and verbal representation. I propose to call the truth in the social, social aspect, the truth that unites us, moral truth. There are several kinds of truth. Moral truth is just one of them. I would like to distinguish four different types of truth and classify them according to their dependence on or their, or, or their impossibility of proof. Mathematical or logical truths, for instance, two times two is four, can be proven. The same applies to historical and juridical truths. Religious truths, on the other hand, for instance, God created heaven and earth, or Jesus is the Christ, cannot be proven. Revealed truths require belief. They can, however, be witnessed. And that is the matter of the martyrs, from Greek, martyrs, witness. This is what Jesus tries, now I come to religion after all, this is what Jesus tries to make clear to Pilate, when he answered to the question of Pilate, are you a king? My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. Pilate insists, Art thou a king then? Jesus answered, Thou sayest that I am a king. To this end I was born, and for this cause I came into the world, that I should bear witness unto the truth. Hina martyreso te aleteia. Everyone that is of the truth heareth, my voice. Then Pilate, and we cannot blame him, asks his famous question, what is truth? And he means this not as a question, but as a closing statement. Jesus speaks of a truth that is not of this world, ectu cosmo tuto. And that, can, and that can thus be neither researched, recognized, and known, but has to be believed and witnessed, in the extreme case, by dying for it. Already the Old Testament knows of this truth. Thus <clears throat> speaks God in Deutero Isaiah to his people. Ye are my witnesses, Atem Edi, saith the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that ye may know and believe me and understand that I am he, before me there was no God formed, neither shall there be after me. And also, fear ye not, neither be afraid. Have not I told thee from that time, and have I declared it? Ye are even my witnesses. Is there a God beside me? 
Yeah, there is no God. I know not any. This exactly is the mission for which the chosen people has been chosen, to witness the truth that there is only one true God, the creator of heaven and earth. It is a truth that is not of this world and cannot be found out by research or experience, but presupposes an intervention from outside, which we are used to call transcendent. A transcendent truth is not based on experience, research and investigation, but on revelation. Belief in the sense of faith refers to the non-evident, by no empirical means attainable, only through revelation accessible. As has been made known to Judaism on Mount Sinai, to Christianity in the figure of Jesus, and to Islam through the revelations given to Muhammad. The pagan religions do not know of this concept of revelation, nor of faith, and the missionaries had great difficulties to find native equivalents for Paul's notion of pistis, which he defined in the most concise way. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Transcendent truth depends on revelation and, therefore, on God. The other type of truth that cannot be proven is moral truth. Moral truth, however, is from this world. It requires not revelation, but experience, attention and transmission. This is the kind of truth that Jaspers had in mind when he wrote, True is what unites us. He was certainly not thinking of revealed truth. Revealed truth, to be sure, has a very strong connecting or uniting power. But the us that is united by this form of truth is never universal but always restricted to the community to which the truth has been revealed, the Jewish Kahal, the Christian Ecclesia, the Muslim Ummah. Its uniting force is as strong as its dividing one. Jaspers, on the other hand, was thinking of a global us, and defined that as true which could operate on a universal, global scale, creating global solidarity. For this concept, Jaspers looked into the past to find a period that could be normative, exemplary, of highest relevance for mankind in general. Like classical antiquity for the West, the age of Christ for the Christians, the age of Muhammad for the Muslim, a classical antiquity, so to speak, for the whole of humanity. Globalizing classics, this is how Jaspers' project could be paraphrased. Jaspers found what he was looking for in an observation that was made 180 years before his time. In 1771, the young Indologist Abraham Hyacinthe Anquetil du Perron published his path-breaking translation of the Zend Avesta, the first one in the European language, in fact, the first oriental original text that appeared in, in, in a European language. In the introduction, he discussed the dates of Zoroaster's life, decided for the 6th century as the best attested and most plausible date, and noted the synchronicity of Zoroaster with Confucius 
and Pherecydes of Syros, the teacher of Pythagoras, who obviously independently changed with their teaching the course of humanity and inaugurated une époque considérable dans l'histoire du genre humain. It is precisely this epoch, epoch considérable, that Jasper's dubbed 180 years later the, the Axian site, the Axial Age. Ancatil had no explanation for this strange coincidence. He attributed to nature, <clears throat> which or who chose to produce at the same time it had three different parts of the bird, génie, qui devoit donner le ton à l'univers, who <clears throat> should set the tone or lead the way for the universe. Others followed his lead and enriched the list of great contemporaries by the names of Lao Tse, Buddha, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and the other prophets, as well as of the Greek tragedians and later philosophers, who made the step from mythos to logos, from polytheism to monotheism, and created the spiritual and intellectual world in which we, and this we means the whole of humanity, are still living. The truth that unites us appeared in the actual age and meant the origin of history. Only from then on, I'm, now all this is Jaspers, yeah, I, I do not believe in the actual age, but this is Jaspers. Only from then on can we speak of history in the global sense and of humanity as the carrier or subject of history. In Jasper's eyes, history is not as old as mankind, nor as agriculture, or urbanism, writing, or the state, but <clears throat> as the truth that unites us, the emergence of universal ideas of global thinking. My art, to be sure, cannot count as a universal concept. The us that is united by this truth does certainly not refer to mankind in general, but to the Egyptians, for whom the sun god has installed Pharaoh on earth. But a closer look at the terminology of the text reveals some remarkable details. Re puts Pharaoh not on the land of Egypt, but on the earth of the living. The word for humans can also signify Egyptians in opposition to Libyans, Nubians, and Asiatics. But here it appears in opposition to gods and spirits, the dead, and cannot be translated otherwise than by humans. There is a naive universalism at work here that simply identifies the own fellow countrymen with mankind in general, a very widespread phenomenon in archaic societies. This is not real universalism, to be sure, but also a far cry from that very explicit distinction between us and them, between neighbor, guest, sojourner, and stranger, which we find in the Old Testament. The biblical us is very strictly defined against different forms of outsiders, whereas the ancient Egyptian us circumscribes a rather open horizon and the boundaries between inner and outer are rather fuzzy. God, at least, and this seems to be the point of this excerpt from the Book of Gates in the tomb of Seti I, takes care of them all. 
And this is also what we read in the hymns of this time around 1300 BC. Praising God for his wisdom to create the Nile for the Egyptians and to set another Nile on high in the clouds for the other nations in order to fertilize their soil in form of rain. These hymns also praise God for having distinguished humans by different skin color and different language. If you think of God and his creative and sustaining activity in the world, it is obvious that the Egyptian we comprises all objects of this activity and not just the Egyptians. Ma'at, on the one hand, is much older than the centuries about the middle of the first millennium BCE that Jaspers dubbed the Axial Age and goes back to the third millennium BCE. On the other hand, Ma'at corresponds exactly to what I propose to understand by moral truth. It is founded not on revelation, but on experience, and is a matter not of faith, but of education, common sense, and transmission. And this is the kind of truth that has the closest relations to time. In the same way as the English word for truth recalls the concept of truthfulness or loyalty, the German word Wahrheit recalls the words wären and bewähren, meaning to last and to prove one's worth, or waren and bewahren, that is to preserve. There is a clear connection between moral truth and duration or sustainability. Truth takes time to come true, to be transmitted and remembered, but then it stays true <clears throat> and bestows duration and endurance on everything that is grounded in truth and not in falsehood. Moral truth needs time and memory to prove its value. In a society without memory, nothing can stay true. And this relationship of truth to time, memory, and community is what is permanently stressed in Egyptian texts and forms the nucleus of the concept of Ma'at. Ma'at, in the sense of moral truth, requires in the first place memory and responsibility. That is a consciousness of that which one owes to others, first in the sense of gratitude for benefits received, Secondly, in the sense of conscious, the consciousness, consciousness of one's own guilt. And thirdly, in the sense of faithfulness, vis-à-vis -vis contracted obligations and promises. And this is exactly the kind of truth to be told and to be done, which the Egyptian notion of Mahat refers to. It means truth as well as justice. And this double reference is not you, as we have seen an incapability to make the distinction. It is, expresses a conscience identification. If it's about moral truth, the truth that unites us, it cannot be God without justice. <clears throat> so the concept of moral truth <clears throat> belongs to the concept of moral time, which is equally central in Egyptian thought. Moral time is a concept of time where every action has consequences. And this is what the teaching of For Mericare, a wisdom text from the beginning of the second millennium BCE, calls the jointing of all acting. 
the interlocking of actions and consequences, like key and slot, gives rise to a form of time full of meaning in which the good is rewarded and the evil is avenged. <coughs> and even Shakespeare employs the same metaphor from the language of carpenters, where he lets Hamlet say, the time is out of joint, as long that is as the regicide is not avenged. In moral time, everything has consequences. No cause without effect and vice versa. In order to be able to live and persist in this time, one needs memory. If memory disappears, the society disintegrates. In another papyrus from the early second millennium BCE, a protagonist complains of the dissolution of memory and communication. To whom can I speak today? Nobody remembers the other day. Nobody acts for him who has acted nowadays. If there is nobody who remembers what has been done, agreed upon, contracted, promised, there is no use of communication. Moral time has vanished and this all in pieces, all coherence gone. John Donne's verses sound like a translation from an Egyptian lamentation. This all in pieces, all coherence gone, all just supply and all relation. Prince, subject, father, son are things forgot. For every man alone thinks he has got to be a phoenix, and that then can be none of that kind of which he is, but he. The Egyptian idea is the man who remembers. The good character returns to his place of yesterday, for it is ordered, act for him who has acted, in order to keep him acting. And this means to thank him for what he has done. To act in moral time and on the basis of moral truth means to work in and on a connection or coherence that is at the same time socially and temporally conceived. Moral truth, or justice, unites society as well as time. And this connection between truth and memory has also been stressed by Jaspers in his acceptance speech. Mere natural beings forget and start always from scratch. We, however, are humans and acquire never truthfulness if we do not <clears throat> put before our eyes what has been done. So I read this also in German. Bloße Naturwesen vergessen und fangen von vorn an. Wir aber sind Menschen und werden nimmer mehr wahrhaftig, wenn wir nicht vor Augen haben, was getan wurde. Truth, in the sense of trust, truthfulness, that is moral truth, requires memory. Nobody, however, has worked out this connection of memory and morality in a more explicit way as Nietzsche in his genealogy of morals, albeit in a polemical intention, because Nietzsche wants the superman, den Übermenschen, and not the conventional fellow human being, den Mitmenschen, whereas this is precisely what Jaspers and the ancient Egyptians are pleading for. And precisely this necessarily forgetful animal 
in whom forgetting is a strength, representing a form of robust health, has bred for himself a counter device, memory, with the help of which forgetfulness can be suspended in certain cases, namely in those cases where promise is to be made. Consequently, it is by no means merely a passive inability to be rid of an impression once it has made its impact, nor is it just indigestion caused by giving your word on some occasion and finding out you cannot cope. Instead, it is an active desire not to let go, a desire to keep on desiring what has been on some occasion desired. Really, it is the will's memory. So that a world of strange new things, circumstances, and even acts of will may be placed quite safely in between the original I will, I shall do, and the actual discharge of the will, its act, without breaking this long chain of the will. But what a lot of preconditions there are for this. In order to have that degree of control over the future, men must first have learned to distinguish between what happens by accident and what by design, to think causally, to view the future as the present and anticipate it, to grasp with certainty what is end and what is means. In all, to be able to calculate, compute, and before he can do this, man himself will really have to become reliable, regular, necessary, even in his own self-image, so that he, as someone making a promise, is, is answerable for his own future. Nietzsche goes on and on, but I think his point is clear, and it is much the same point <clears throat> as that which has been made by the Egyptian author almost 4,000 years before. Nietzsche's moral case is to make a promise, to enter an obligation, to commit oneself to the future, whereas the Egyptian moral case is gratitude, to commit oneself to the past, to respond to some past activity. But in both cases, it's about responding, that is, responsibility. And thus Nietzsche continues, but this is precisely what constitutes the long history of the origins of responsibility. That particular task of breeding an animal with the prerogative to promise includes, if we have already understood, a precondition and preparation, the more immediate task of first making man to a certain degree necessary, uniform, appear amongst peers, orderly and consequently predictable. And not, we may add, a phoenix, as John Donne complained. The Egyptian text with which we started, the eloquent peasant, resumes its concept in the triad of the triad of performing Ma'at in three phrases that at first reading seem rather enigmatic. There is no yesterday for the sluggish, no friend for him who is deaf to truth, no feast for the greedy. Being sluggish, deaf to Ma'at, or greedy, are three forms of falling short of Ma'at. By not doing mad, sluggishness, not listening to mad, which is equivalent to not speaking mad, and greed, which is a sin of the heart, 
The Egyptian word, word for greed is formed with the word heart, being greedy hearted. Three paradigmatic transgressions of the Egyptian imperative, do ma'at, speak ma'at, think ma'at. The same text also stresses again and again the strong relation between ma'at and time. Ma'at is that which bestows duration, persistence, sustainability to life. Ma'at is for eternity. It or she goes down with him who does it to the necropolis, or who does she, who does her, <clears throat> to the necropolis, to the grave, to the tomb. When he is buried and earth envelops him, his name is not effaced on earth and he is remembered on account of his virtue. He who did, that is, acted according to Maat during his life, will be accompanied by her to the grave. His name will not be forgotten on earth, and posterity will remember him because of his perfection. In Egypt, one made oneself unforgettable, not by surpassing and breaking all norms, but by perfectly fulfilling them. Falsehood, lie, fraud, on the other hand, cannot persist. As we read in another passage, the same text. If falsehood sets out, it goes astray. It cannot cross in a ferry, it cannot row. As for him who is enriched by it, he has no children and no heirs on earth. As for him who sails with it, his boat cannot moor in its harbor. He cannot reach land. Also the oldest, best known and classical of the Egyptian wisdom texts, the teaching of Tahotep, underlines the connection between living by Ma'at and reaching a blissful end by building a tomb and handing one's position and possessions down to one's children. <clears throat> the man and yours whose guideline is Ma'at who proceeds according to his paces. He can draw up a will by it, but there is no tomb for the greedy-hearted. The idea of moral time, where nothing is without consequences, where good is rewarded and evil is punished, is a familiar concept in Western, that is Christian tradition. Here, however, it is God who founded and guarantees this connection and coherence by, quote, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me, and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. Moral time is a concept that belongs to the covenant that God formed with the children of Israel and that Christians and Muslims claim to have inherited. Correspondingly, it is widely assumed that morality rises and falls with the belief in God. In the same way as the monotheistic religions are convinced that the coherence of moral time and the cohesion of moral society depend on the belief in God, the ancient Egyptians were convinced that moral time and society depended on the state that first of all had to produce and secure the institutional conditions <coughs> for Ma'at to be done and spoken. God had put Pharaoh on the earth of a living in order to produce Zechepa, cause to exist, Ma'at, and annihilate Israel. 
Without the pharaonic state, no truth. And without truth, no society. Because society is based on truth, trust, and truth. The revolutionary achievement of Jewish monotheism was to relieve society from the pharaonic dependency by making it dependent on God alone. Even Nietzsche, who declared the death of God, prophesied that this would lead to the advent of nihilism and to an age of immense warfare, revolutions, explosions. These are quotes from Nietzsche. This prophecy came true. After the most devastating of these wars, however, some of the leading spokesmen, such as Karl Jaspers, instead of falling into nihilism, bethought themselves of moral truth, which they sought to define in a secular way. Thomas Mann, the exiled German writer, held a prominent place among this group. In 1943, two years before the end of the war and eight years before the Declaration of the Rights of Man by the UNO, he wrote in a letter to Robert Hartmann from April 7, 1943, the trend unmistakably exists toward a kind of world organization, and nothing of this sort is possible without a dose of secularized Christianity, a new Bill of Rights, an all-obliging constitution of human right and human decency that grants, independently of any forms of state, and government, the minimum respect for the homo dei in general. Now I read in German this quote, the tendency to irgendeine Art von Weltorganisation ist unverkennbar vorhanden und nichts dergleichen ist möglich ohne eine bestimmende Dosis säkularisierten Christentums, ohne eine neue Bill of Rights, ein alle bindendes Grundgesetz des Menschenrechts und Menschenanstandes, das unabhängig von Staats- und Regierungsformen ein Minimum an Respekt vor dem Homo Dei allgemein garantiert. Manns Formula Secularized Christianity refers to the Decalogue, asking for a similar, similarly all-binding code that could do without referring to a specific God and creed but that would rise moral truth to the rank of a universal constitution for a civilized humanity. Thomas Mann, however, opposed vehemently the, <clears throat> opposed vehemently the age-old praise of permanence, endurance, and sustainability as the essence of truth. What he professed to value most was not timeless duration, but its contrary, which he called transitoriness, meaning the German Vergänglichkeit. Vergänglichkeit, which has a totally different, different ring, full of romantic melancholy and poetry. He contributed this text to a book edited by J. Edison and Dan Gediman, titled This I Believe. Fortunately, this contribution survived also as a sound document, and I propose to listen to Thomas Mann's counterstatement in his own voice. And now, this I believe. Here is Edward Armorow. This I believe. Thomas Mann, 
the great novelist, essayist, and philosopher, comes from a family of merchants. He was born in Lübeck, Germany, in 1875. Thomas Mann was a militant anti-fascist, and Hitler, of course, burned and banned his writings. He came to the United States in 1938, and now lives and works in Santa Monica, California. Thomas Mann reveals now his creed. What I believe, what I value most, is transitoriness. But is not transitoriness, the perishableness of life, something very sad? No, it is the very soul of existence. It imparts value, dignity, interest to life. Transitoriness creates time, and time is the essence. Potentially, at least, time is the supreme, most useful gift. Time is related to, yes, identical with everything creative and active, with every progress toward a higher goal. Without transitoriness, without beginning or end, birth or death, there is no time either. Timelessness, in the sense of time never ending, never beginning, is a stagnant nothing. It is absolutely uninteresting. Life is possessed by tremendous tenacity. Even so, its presence remains conditional, and as it had a beginning, so it will have an end. I believe that life, just for this reason, is exceedingly enhanced in value, in charm. One of the most important characteristics distinguishing man from all other forms of nature is his knowledge of transitoriness, of beginning and end, and therefore of the gift of time. In man, transitory life attains its peak of animation, of soul power, so to speak. This does not mean man alone would have a soul. Soul quality pervades all beings, but man's soul is most awake in his knowledge of the interchangeability of the terms existence and transitoriness. To man, time is given like a piece of land, as it were, entrusted to him for faithful tilling a space in which to strive incessantly, achieve self-realization, move onward and upward. Yes, with the aid of time, man becomes capable of wresting the immortal from the mortal. Deep down, I believe, and deem such belief natural to every human soul, that in the universe, primic significance must be attributed to this earth of ours. Deep down, I believe that the creation of the universe out of nothingness and that of life out of inorganic state ultimately aimed at the creation of man. I believe that man is meant as a great experiment whose possible failure by man's own guilt would be paramount to the failure of creation itself. Whether this belief be true or not, 
man would be well advised if he behaved as though it were. That was Nobel Prize winner Thomas Mann. His value of time, as everything that is creative and active, is perhaps one of the secrets of his own productive and creative life. <clears throat> yeah, there you have Thomas Mann as an existentialist. As he has certainly not read Heidegger, Sein und Zeit, but <clears throat> he, yeah, he professes a similar conviction. And I think this sounds very convincing. But Mann is mistaken in equating the opposite of transitoriness with timelessness. Timelessness, which he finds so uninteresting. Duration is also time, and those who yearned at duration were also yearning at life. Life is transitory, and to realize the transitoriness and finality of life is the core of wisdom. The transitoriness of life is the theme of Psalm 90. There we read in verse 12, So teach, teach us to number our days, that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. Life is short, but wisdom is long, and in, insofar as humans are able to realize their transitoriness, they partake of the longevity of wisdom and moral truth. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this Truth To Be Told podcast. For more information on the Truth To Be Told series, please go to the UCD Humanities Institute's website.